Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Psalm 72, 1 through 14, and 18 through 20. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear what you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound, till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm so grateful to be with you all this morning. I'm especially grateful to share worship with you if you're joining us and you're in first to fourth grade. Um, there's coloring sheets and crayons that you can uh, use during the sermon if you'd like. Uh, if you'd like one, raise your hand up high and a greeter will come around and bring you a coloring sheet and some colored pencils. This is very exciting. We, um, I never know how to do these kinds of transitions, but here we go. We've come to a, a point of genuine political crisis in this country, and it seems to me that it's a crisis of trust. There's widespread distrust in our society toward our government, elected officials, financial institutions, news media, law enforcement, religious institutions, to name just a few things. Every week we're given new reasons, good and bad, not to trust any of it. A society cannot live without trust. When we turn to scripture for wisdom about political leadership, we actually find a world very much like our own. The great kings of history who appear in the biblical narrative, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, and Caesar, they all turn out to be enemies of God because they use their political power to serve their own desires at the cost of human life and well-being. And when it came to Israel's own kings, well, they weren't much different. That's exactly what one of Israel's first prophets warned them about when they asked God for a human king. Israel's kings would be like the kings of the nations. Not even David and Solomon, Israel's most beloved kings, were totally good. Scripture itself tells us that. So what does Scripture have to say to us about political leadership? 
What sort of king can we really trust? If we want to find a positive vision for political leadership in Scripture, we might do well by looking at the prayers of Israel. Psalm 72, which we heard read this morning, is a positive vision for political leadership. God teaches us to pray for a king. And that prayer reveals God's desire for the character of a king and the quality of his rule. This prayer, I believe, aligns and corrects our political desires according to God's desire for a king. So what is God's desire for a king? Let's look at the psalm together, Psalm 72. The psalm is three things, I think. First of all, it's a prayer. And here is the prayer. We are to ask God for a just king, a righteous king, a king whose rule will be for all peoples, a king whose rule brings blessing, a king whose rule will last forever. That is the prayer for the king. But the psalm is more than a prayer. It's a prophecy. And this is the prophecy. When this king rules... The poor will be treated right, those in need will be delivered, people will flourish, and peace will abound. When this king rules, the weak will receive mercy, the indebted will be released, the violence and oppression of the lowly will come to an end. So who is this king that Scripture teaches us to pray for? At the beginning of the psalm, uh, there's the credit of the psalm to Solomon. It says, of Solomon. But the end of the psalm suggests it's the last of King David's prayers. So, which is it? It seems to me uh, it's both. Perhaps this prayer was to be prayed in Israel every time a new king assumed the throne. The problem is that no king in the history of Israel ever lived up to this prayer or ever lived up to the prophecy. And that's why I think that this psalm teaches us to desire God to be our king. God looked at the whole of humanity and found none fit for kingship. And so in Christ, God became king of us all. The kingship of Jesus is unlike the kingship of Pharaoh and Caesar, They use their political power for their own interests, but when Jesus becomes king, he brings blessing to all people. As the Gospel of Luke tells us, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. This king is holy for others, crowned on the cross, and by that act of power and weakness becomes the savior of all weak lowly, poor, and needy. That is, he becomes our Savior. And that makes me believe that this psalm is not only a prayer, not only a prophecy, it's a promise. This is the promise. God promises that in Christ, he himself will be our king. In Christ, God becomes king of us all. Amen? Amen. Well, that's about all I want to say this morning. (laughs) Usually, I'd stretch out what I said to be 25 or 30 minutes long, but 
It occurred to me that a sermon isn't actually the best way to say what I want to say about this psalm. Uh, The 20th century Christian author C.S. Lewis says, sometimes the best way to say what you want to say is as a fairy tale. He says, uh, far from doling or emptying the actual world, the fairy tale gives it a new dimension of depth. A child does not despise real woods because she has read of enchanted woods. The reading makes all real woods a little enchanted. I wonder if there's a fairy tale that's done that for you. But maybe all I need to say to justify telling such a long fairy tale in a sermon is that Jesus himself told short stories to talk about the kingdom of God. He called them parables. And so this morning, I want to say everything that I just said in the last six minutes or so, but as a fairy tale, adapted from a fairy tale called The Young King by Oscar Wilde. Uh, So kids, if you have those coloring sheets, this is uh, where you can follow along, and I hope you enjoy this story. It's for you as well. And adults, it's for you as well. One day you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again, C.S. Lewis says. So here we go. Once upon a time, there was a young king. It was the night before the day chosen for the ceremony where he would receive his crown, which the nobles called his coronation. The youth, only 16 years old, flung himself back on the soft cushions of his embroidered couch with a deep sigh of relief. Only a year earlier, he thought there was no future for him except as a poor shepherd. He thought he was the only son of the poor shepherd who raised him until statesmen found him and brought him to the palace where the king was on his deathbed and acknowledged him as the last living heir to the throne. Nobody really knew how it came to be that the king's only living heir was raised as a poor shepherd. What mattered was that this shepherd was to become the young king. From the very first moment he was in the palace, the young king showed a strange passion for beauty. He laughed wildly when he saw the rich jewels and golden robe that had been prepared for him. And with a fierce joy, he flung aside his rough leather coat and the coarse sheepskin jacket he had brought with him. His new life as lord of the palace seemed to him a new world, fresh fashioned for his delight. He wandered room to room, corridor to corridor, seeking to find in beauty a remedy for pain. All rare and costly materials fascinated him, and he was so eager to get more of them, he sent away many merchants, some to search for amber with the rough fisherfolk of the North Seas, others to Egypt to look for that curious green turquoise found only in king's tombs, others to lands further and more dangerous for yet more precious treasures. But what the young king cared about the most was the robe of tissued gold he was to wear at his coronation, and the ruby-studded crown, and the scepter with its rows and rings of pearls. The designs for these three items had been submitted to him many months before, and he had given orders that the makers were to work hard day and night to carry them out, that the whole world was to be searched for jewels that would be worthy of their work. He saw himself standing on the high altar of the cathedral in the fair raiment of a king. 
and a smile lingered about his lips. Never before had he felt with such exquisite joy the magic and mystery of beautiful things. That night he fell asleep and he dreamed a dream. And this was his dream. He thought he was standing in a long, low attic amidst the whir and clatter of many looms. He saw the weak figures of weavers bending over their boxes where they made clothes. Pale, sickly-looking children were crouched in the corners. Their faces were pinched with famine, and their thin hands shook and trembled. The young king stood by a weaver to watch what he was doing. The weaver looked at him angrily and said, Why are you watching me? Are you a spy set on us by our master? Who is your master? asked the young king. The land is free, and you are no man's slave. The weaver answered, In war, the strong make slaves of the weak, and in peace, the rich make slaves of the poor. We must work to live, and they give us so little to live on that we die. We crush the grapes, and another drinks the wine. We plant the corn, and our own plate is empty. We have chains, but no person sees them. We are slaves, though men call us free. And the weaver turned away, scowling, and got back to his loom. And the young king saw that it was threaded with a thread of gold. And a great terror came upon him, and he said to the weaver, What is this robe that you are weaving? He answered, It is the robe for the coronation of the young king. What does it matter to you? And the young king gave a loud cry and woke up. And he was in his own chamber, and it was still night. So the young king fell asleep again, and he dreamed. And this was his second dream. He thought he was lying on the deck of a huge ship that was being rowed by a hundred slaves. The hot sun beat brightly on them, and their masters lashed them with whips of leather as they pulled the heavy oars through the water. They reached a little bay, they cast the anchor, and the slaves were made to bring up a long rope ladder, heavily weighted with lead. They threw it over the side of the ship. Then the masters grabbed the youngest of the slaves, filled his nostrils and his ears with wax, and tied a big stone around his waist to help him sink. He crept fearfully down the ladder and disappeared into the deep sea. Deeper and deeper he went until the weight of all the water above him made him feel like it would crush him. After some time, the diver rose up out of the water and clung to the ladder, breathing hard, with a pearl in his right hand. The masters seized it from him and thrust him back. Again and again he came up, and each time he brought with him a pearl. Then the diver came up for the last time, and the pearl he brought with him was fairer than all the pearls of Iran, for it was shaped like the full moon, and it was whiter than the morning star. But his face was strangely pale. And as he fell upon the deck, the blood gushed from his ears and nostrils. He shook for a moment, and then he was still. The master shrugged their shoulders and threw the body overboard, and the captain of the ship laughed, and reaching out, he took the pearl, and when he saw it, he bowed before its beauty and said, This pearl shall be for the scepter of the young king. 
And when the young king heard this, he gave a great cry, and he woke. And he looked through the window and saw that morning was approaching. And he fell asleep again, and he dreamed, and this was his third dream. He thought he was wandering through a dim jungle, hung with strange fruits and beautiful poisonous flowers. As he went on, he saw thousands of men working in a bed of a dried-up river, digging deep pits into the ground and going down into them. At the bottom of one of the pits, death laughed and whistled through his fingers, and a woman came flying through the air. Sickness was written on her forehead, and a crowd of hungry vultures circled around her. She covered the valley with her wings, and no man was left alive. The young king wept and said, Who were these men, and what were they seeking? Rubies for a king's crown, answered a pilgrim who stood behind him, holding a mirror of silver. And he grew pale and said, For what king? The pilgrim answered, Look in this mirror, and you will see him. The young king saw his own face and gave a great cry, and he woke, and, and the bright sunlight was streaming into his room. It was the morning of his coronation, the morning he would become king. The high officers of the state came into his room and kneeled before him, and the royal assistants brought him the robe of tissued gold and the rubied crown and the scepter of pearls, and they laid it before him. The young king looked at them, and they were beautiful. They were more beautiful than anything he had ever seen. But he remembered his dreams. And he said to the nobles, Take these things away. I will not wear them. And all the nobles were amazed. Some of them laughed, thinking he was not serious. But he said to them again, Take these things away. Though it is the day of my coronation, I will not wear them, for on the loom of sorrow and by the white hands of pain my robe has been woven. There is blood in the heart of the ruby and death in the heart of the pearl. And the young king told them his three dreams, and then told them all to leave him. When the door shut, he opened a great painted chest, and from it he took the leather coat and the rough sheepskin jacket he had worn when he watched his sheep as a poor shepherd. He put these on, and in his hand he took his simple shepherd's staff for his scepter. And the young king plucked a string of wild thorns that was climbing over his balcony and bent it into a circle, and he set it on his own head. This shall be my crown, he said to himself. Dressed like this, the young king passed out of the chamber, out of his chamber, into the great hall, where the nobles and statesmen waited for him. Some made fun of him. My lord, the people wait for their king, and you show them a beggar. Others were furious. He brings shame on our state. He is unworthy to be our master. But the young king answered them not a word. He passed by them, mounted a horse, and rode toward the cathedral. On the way, the people began to laugh, and they mocked him too. When he reached the great door of the cathedral, the old bishop arose in wonder from his throne and said to him, My son, is this king's clothing? 
With what crown shall I crown you? And what scepter shall I place in your hand? Surely today should be for you a day of joy, not a day of lament. Shall joy wear what grief has fashioned? Asked the young king. And he told him his three dreams. The bishop was not moved. He shook his head. He told the young king about all the evil things he had seen in the world, an overwhelming flood of horror that not even a king could stop. He said, don't think of your dreams anymore. The burden of this world is too great for one man to bear. The world's sorry, sorrow too heavy for one heart to suffer. You say that in this house? asked the young king. And he walked past the bishop and climbed up the steps of the altar and kneeled down before the image of Christ. At that moment, soldiers, nobles, and statesmen entered the cathedral in a wild tumult with drawn swords and shields of polished steel and loud cries, Where is this dreamer of dreams? Where is this king clothed like a beggar? Where is this boy who brings shame on our state? We will kill him. He is not worthy to rule over us. And in heaven, the angels looked on. They saw the young king in that cathedral, and then they opened their ivory wings and turned to look closer the way only angels can. They saw, they looked through the young king and saw a more distant past and a more glorious figure. They saw another king who was more than a king, who had all the glory of the morning stars, but laid it aside and dressed like the poor of the earth. The angels longed to look more deeply, and they saw more still. They saw a young woman with a newborn infant, born king among animals, born under a wicked king who slaughtered innocent children by the thousands just to rid him from the earth because wise men had told them their dreams of a newborn king. And in that moment, the angels, faces full of salty tears, tasted the wickedness of men who enslaved whole peoples to their own desire, evil people who consumed whole nations to satisfy their hunger for wealth, kings who traded human lives for their own pride and called it power and glory. Then the angels looked again and saw another moment. The hour when all this pain, sorrow, tragedy, blood, grief, and death all focused on one young king. All the pain upon pain upon pain passed from generation to generation, from the beginning to the end of history, all came to a point at the coronation of this young king, a man who was holy for others, a king who absorbed into himself all the suffering and sorrow caused by other kings, a king whose suffering was his power and glory. When sinful men twisted a crown of thorns and set it on his head and lifted him high onto a cross, God called it his coronation and lifted him higher still, above every named name, and called him king of kings for all people in the world whose reign brings blessing and whose rule is everlasting. And so the angels added to their tears their, praisers, their praises and lit incense with lightning until all heaven was alight in worship and glory because in the sufferings of this king, who some called the Christ, God became king of all 
And then there arose a small voice in heaven. It was a prayer. And the angels turned and looked, and there they saw the young king back there in the cathedral. The soldiers' swords and shields clanged as they made their way through the cathedral to kill the young king where he kneeled before the image of Christ. And as they approached, he took a small piece of paper out of his pocket and carefully unfolded it to reveal an illuminated manuscript with an ancient prayer on it to be recited the morning of a king's coronation. He opened up his mouth and said, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. When he finished his prayer, through the painted windows came the sunlight streaming upon him, and the sunbeams wove round him a tissued robe that was fairer than the robe that had been fashioned for him. His dead shepherd's staff blossomed and bore lilies that were whiter than pearls. The dry thorn crown blossomed and bore roses that were redder than rubies. He stood there in a king's raiment, and the glory of God filled the place. And the people fell on their knees in awe, and the nobles sheathed their swords and kneeled, and the bishop's face grew pale and his hands trembled. He kneeled before the young king and said, One greater than I has crowned you. The End In this world, um, I often find myself feeling hopeless, anxious, and powerless. I heard news about horrific violence this week, first in Gilroy, then yesterday in El Paso, and then this morning walking into church in Dayton, Ohio. And I just feel angry and sad. I want so badly for the world to be different. But I have no power to change the past, no matter what I do. My power to change the future is so insignificant that I often find myself bewildered and hopeless about the world's problems. You know, there's that phrase that's popular, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. The change I want to see in the world is no more war, no more violence, no more death. And it's hard for me to see how any change I make in my everyday life will put even one of those things to an end. I want the world to be saved. And I can't do it. For me, the surprise of the psalm is the same as the surprise of the story of the young king. The surprise is that I am not really the king. I am not the one whose world it is to save. None of us are. The young king realized this when he put on his shepherd's clothes and prayed for the image of Christ. And we realize it when we count ourselves among people who are poor 
weak, powerless, helpless, and in need, because we are. God would have us love our neighbors with what gifts and capacities he's given us. God does not ask us to give what we do not have. God does not ask us to be kings. God is on the throne. God is king. God sees exactly what we are and clothes us in the most wonderful raiment, a promise that in Christ God will be king of us all, fully, finally, and forever. Thanks be to God.